Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. In just two weeks, we're going to be celebrating our 100th episode of this podcast, So to thank you for listening and to continue helping you on your singing teacher journey, we're running a giveaway worth more than £1,000. On the 1st of March, one lucky winner will get a 12-month subscription to the BAST membership and the replays from every single one of our Focus on events. But why would you want to win that, I hear you ask? Well, in the membership, you'll find an ever-expanding library of masterclasses, currently around 68 webinars and growing, covering everything from vocal distortion, teaching people with individual needs, managing reflux, getting your head around those formants, to name just a few. There's also a vocal warm-up course, recorded lesson observation sessions, regular teaching clinics and so much more. Not only that, our winner will also get all of our recordings from our Focus on events. Over the past few years, we've taken a deep dive into performance anxiety and mindset, breathing, and the body and the voice. That's 15 speakers, three voice conferences, and they could all be yours. To win, you'll just need to tune in on the 1st of March, so make sure you subscribe and hit the bell icon so you get notified as soon as the 100th episode airs. Now, on to today's episode, where I am joined by a singer and voice coach who was the very first artist to play London's O2 Arena. She has taught music to over 4,000 children and has worked on ITV's The Voice Kids. In 2019, she was awarded an MA from the Voice Study Centre, where her work focused on the benefits of singing and songwriting on well-being and mental health. She is the author of the Creative Songwriting Journal, and if you can't say it, sing it, which teach songwriting to children and young adults, and she also specialises in working with brain injury and dementia through singing. Just a heads up, this episode does come with a trigger warning on the topic of suicide. Sophie Garner, it's a pleasure to meet you, and welcome to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. How are you? Hello, Alexa. I'm very good, thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. It's so exciting to have you and I was thinking about you actually just yesterday because I am a massive bookworm and I've just finished a novel by someone called John McGregor called Lean Full Stand and it's all centred around a gentleman who experiences a stroke during an ice storm in Antarctica and there's one particular chapter that is really quite poignant because it's written from the point of view of the protagonist as the stroke occurs and what follows is this compromise in verbal communication and you do a lot of work with brain injury and dementia and working in specialist neurology care units so why is music such a helpful tool in that situation and how does it keep a person's story going how does it keep it rolling so the great thing, the great thing about music and brain injury is because there are certain parts of the brain that are involved in speech. So, for instance, um, left side of the brain is where our speech centre is. Music and singing is on the right side. So often if there is a stroke to the left side of the brain, music and singing can take over. So the the melody of singing is used now in music therapy. It's used a lot in acquired brain injury rehab units and for traumatic brain injury. 
because you then would take a phrase and you add a simple melody to it. So I have many clients that either have aphasia and they can't form language at all, or the language they're forming is muddled. They say the wrong thing. Give them lyrics, they're singing. It's incredible. So it's brilliant for speech. It's brilliant for breathing. I have a lot of clients that struggle with swallowing, um, often because of due to paralysis. Speaking loud will be really, really difficult. So it's great for building confidence. Um, a lot of the clients that I work with have really lost their confidence. They're very depressed. Um, suicide is very prevalent amongst people with brain injury. You've got their wives and, and husbands becoming full-time carers. Their whole world changes. So aside from the the very sort of physical benefits and neurological benefits of, of singing for, for speech, it has a really, I would say, the biggest impact that I see is on the emotional well-being and the camaraderie of, say, for instance, when I go to Headway and all my work, with the exception of one person, is group. I have one one-to-one to one client, but it's all group. So they're all in it together. And it's this shared commonality, a bit like, you know, going back to, to World War II um, and having music being used as a means to get people more positive. It's that we're all in this together. There's no secrets here. We all know our story. We all know it's really crap and we don't know when we're going to improve. And I've been really welcomed in as a group member, which is an extremely privileged point of view to be in because I just bounce in, you know, with all my energy, walking, talking, and it's about lifting the room. So there's a, by the end of the hour, everybody's buzzing. We've, we song write as well, which is something that's been extremely powerful um, because it enables everybody to actually have a voice quite, you know, in the literal sense, in the, in the literature, you know, it's that they are literally writing their own narrative. And we wrote a song called I Am Normal. And I made sure that I didn't have any part in this. I, f I put the melody together, but they all created their own lyrics. And then we sang it at the Christmas performance. And it was so emotional. And, you know, members of family were in tears because they're singing their truth. It, I, I'm, I love the work. It just, I'd do it actually if I wasn't paid because I love it. I get so much from it. Yeah. And speaking of songwriting, you've you've got some great books, and we'll get onto that in just a second. But I wonder what drew you to working with children, because I mentioned in the introduction that you've worked with thousands of them. What was it that first interested you in working with that particular age group? I fell into teaching, I'll be honest, by accident. I had a phone call out of the blue from this guy running an agency for PPA cover. And he said to me, I found you on the internet. Um, I wondered if you could do some PPA cover. Our music teacher's having to go off on absence because her father's dying. And I did. And I was flying by the seat of my pants. I, unbeknownst to me, I actually went into what at the time was a really troubled school. Mm. Um it was in special measures. They were really struggling. So that was my first experience of a school. So to me, that's what all schools were like. And it was a really good grounding. 
in in teaching and I had lots of children that had lots of issues some children had been permanently removed from their families so it was in a really difficult area socially and economically and that just opened up a whole new realm of work and then slowly bit by bit I started doing more teaching because I loved it I was bringing in acting even dancing and I was I was doing what I do best I work best when I'm under pressure and I think it goes back to my early days being in the National Youth Theatre as an actress and loving improvising and, and as a jazz singer I love improvising and making stuff up so it's that adrenaline rush I get a real kick of I have got to think on my feet and I love that challenge in the moment it sounds a bit perverse really but it's the way I sort of thrive so yeah and now my my teaching, it's, God, yeah, I've, I've taught like 4,000 plus kids across primary and secondary. And that has informed all that experience over the last probably 14 years has informed unknowingly until lockdown when I wrote the books. It, it all informed what's in the books. Mm. And I suddenly started seeing this formula that I was delivering in schools working regardless of the age, regardless of the education. I built this formula for songwriting and it was like, this is really working. So in lockdown, when I lost all my work, literally overnight gigs, therapy work, all my choirs, I thought, well, I either sit in a corner and rock myself stupid with wine or I do something. And I got all my journals and notebooks where I'd made all the notes over the years for these books that I'd had in my head. And that was it. So that was March 2020. We went into lockdown. I've published and released my first book just before Christmas of that year. And then I wrote the second one, if you can't say it, sing it, in the March of 2021. It was crazy. Yeah. Well, and congratulations for that. That seems incredible to see your name in print for sure and all of that knowledge that you've accumulated. Before we go on to the books, you've worked on The Voice Kids. And as you say, you've worked in schools. Is there a different approach that you implemented for both scenarios? Or is there something that you found was just working as an energy or as an approach to working with these young people? What an interesting question, Alexa. God, I've never been asked that. But you you answered my question by the suggestion that you made at the end. And it is, it's an energy. Because when you're auditioning on The Voice... And I was hired to do two seasons. So I'm the front of house, so to speak. They come in for their very first audition. It's me and a director. And it's, hi, what's your name? And, you know, when you turn yourself around, imagine yourself as that child. Frightening. And I kind of put myself in that child's position thinking they're going to be here for such a short space of time. They've probably made a journey across the country. So I was just really nurturing. I kind of took that sort of mother role and just was really welcoming, really upbeat, which is exactly how I am when I'm at school. And I just took the kind of bubbly, chilled out, not teacher, just like sort of became really matey, I suppose. And they totally relaxed. And then they give the audition, like they sort of walk in like this and then it's, and then dad and mum go, so yeah, it's that that for me with me in the narrative. That's my approach for mm. for for school and for those auditions. Definitely, 
does it really come down to empathy? It's empathy. It's also because I get so many children and adults, I have to say, that come to me privately that have been told at school. And we, you know, we might be talking like 30 years ago that they were told that they can't join the school choir because they can't sing. And this would be in front of a whole class. I've had a grown CEO, you know, really feisty woman in front of me in this room where I am now, where I teach and just cry because it's affected her that deeply. And of course it will, because I'm a great believer in this area where we vocalise, whether that's as a public speaker, a comedian or a singer or an actor or not any of those this is where we we tell our story. So when somebody says, God, your laugh's awful, or I don't like the way you speak, or I can't stand your voice, that's as good as saying to somebody, you're really ugly, or look at the state of your body. It's so personal. There's nothing we can change about it. It's who we are. And that's incredibly destructive. So I have a real beef. In fact, the first blog I've got on my website is you can't sing. And it's all about my loathing. And it still goes on. And it's disgraceful. I hate it. The damage is just horrific. Everyone should be allowed to sing. Mm. You know, and the, and the brain injury is a perfect example of that. Isn't that horrendous? I mean, I've had a couple of people join my choir recently that I didn't know until a couple of weeks ago that they'd been miming. Oh, wow for a couple of weeks because they were worried that they might be heard and it's exactly that and so when I teach it's I'm so nurturing it's because I I think about how would I want to be accepted if I joined a choir with all that fear and all that stuff and baggage um so I make it really fun and it's the same with with kids yeah yeah mm. Your books, your two books, The Creative Songwriting Journal and If You Can't Say It, Sing It, they have a bit of a background, don't they? And the catalyst is quite hard hitting. Can you tell us a little bit about how the books were born? You've talked about lockdown, but what was that kind of set off point? I had written a lot of poetry when I was between the ages of 13 and 16 um, at a time that was really really quite challenging i had a very dysfunctional um shall we say upbringing during those years when my mum and dad had divorced and i'd completely lost myself um one of the parents wasn't present in my life my mother and so she was there but wasn't present if that makes sense and so i lost myself in writing poetry and i've actually still got the book I've still got the book and when I do public speaking, I, I take it and I show it. And I would then go to school and and show this to, to some of the English teachers and I thrived in, in drama and singing at school. And so unknowingly, that was the first seed for the two books that I wrote. However, there, there was a wonderful experience that happened um, with a student of mine whose name I won't say, but we're still in touch. And she came to see me for, she was having regular lessons. She'd not been coming that long, probably about two months. Um, and this was one-to-one. -one. So we're going back like, gosh, nine years. She walked in one day and I just knew something wasn't right. I knew her well enough to know her energy was off. And I just turned around and I said, blah, blah, whatever's wrong. I know something's wrong. She just burst into tears and she said, 
And she went like this and she said, I've tried to take my own life. And I said, right, okay. First question I said was, who have you told? No one. I'm not telling anyone but you. And inside, I'm sort of going, my, you know, my legs are going, my swan legs underneath the water are going, what do I do with this? I'm not a counsellor. You know, this is every kind of teacher's dreaded situation because of that boundary. So I said, look, you know, can you tell a teacher you really ought to, to speak to someone? No, I'm only telling you. And I said, well, can I tell Paul, my partner, because, you know, he meets you at the door sometimes. She went, yeah. So with that, we then, she still wouldn't. I She left the house. I found a suicide helpline. At this particular point, the whole safeguarding thing wasn't as strict as it is now. And they said to me, if she's refusing to tell anyone at school because you're seeing her privately and because of her age, she doesn't have to. And I said, well, what do I do? And she said, well, she obviously trusts you. Can you work through it with her? And they said, you know, what do you do with her? And I said, I'm her vocal coach. So that's exactly what I did. I said, right, we're going to we're gonna write about this. So I got her to get a journal. That journal started with, I can't write. I don't know how to songwrite. And she, this journal was this thick and she'd filled it with songs. And we got Garage Band and I got her singing one of them. And she literally spilled out how she was feeling, her self-harming, everything. And she's now thriving. And it's really great to see. And we still keep in contact. And she, and I thank her in my book, in the acknowledgement. And yeah, and we we still talk. And she said, you know, you helped save my life. I said, no, we did it together. Mm. So it was very powerful, very, very special. Mm. Mm. And that really informed my absolute certainty of what songwriting can do. Because you're literally going, you can say whatever you want which is why the second book is if you can't say it, sing it. You know, if you can't verbalise in a conversation to someone how you're feeling or you can't because it's about, you know, you're feeling angry about someone you you don't even have contact with or whatever, you could deliver it in a song. And then to sing that, the emotional input and investment in that, it's so healthy and it's such a positive way rather than going, you know, punch someone in the school playground or whatever. But I use my same methodology with any age group. So although, you know, I've done this in classrooms with over 4,000 kids, I've carried this out with teenagers in secondary. I've carried it out with adults. So it's a formula that works. Two statistics that I remember Mental Health First Aid England quoting are that 75% of lifetime mental health issues have developed by the age of 24. And that as of 2018, I believe that one in eight children aged between five and 19 years old meet the criteria for a mental health condition. So what is that formula, that songwriting formula? And you don't have to give all all your secrets away. (laughs) Uh, How does that help to maintain that, that better mental health space? So I literally strip it right back. I think, who was it who once said, you're only a really good teacher when you can teach something in its simplest terms. Take away all the bravado and all the academia and pedagogy. So I will start, for instance, one of the pages in my book, it says glass empty, glass half empty, glass half full. And I'm going to actually do this in the school that I'm going to on Thursday because it's it's mental health week, children's mental health week this week. So I've been hired to go into a school and they don't know it yet, but I will go in and I will ask them what they think 
a glass half full is or a glass half empty. And there'll always be the, oh, well, you know, depends how you look at it, miss. There'll always be somebody that gets it. So we will write a song about, for them, what is their glass overflowing? So I will then go into a whole narrative of, depends how you look at life. You can wake up every day and come to school and decide if you're going to be happy or not. You can change that halfway through the day if you're a bit moody. So we will then write a song about what in their life is their glass overflowing, finding the positives. And so I will then get them writing down really quickly. We'll spend a couple of minutes. Then I might take their sentences and put them together and just create a really simple chorus. And then they're like, so I do that literally in the moment. I've, I've come up with a whole song before. I've taken like a line from everybody. Then I will get them singing it. And they're like, she's singing my song. That's my line, that one. Oh. Just as something as simple as that yeah. is in, it's incredible. And in my book, I talk about getting kids to find their SSS, S, SSS, their special singing space. So finding somewhere at home where a bit like a mindfulness space, you know, a bit like somebody having like a temple area or where they go to meditate, have a space where they go just to do their singing and songwriting and have their pen and paper there and a nice cushion so that whenever they go to that space, a bit like whenever we go into an office, we know that's we're there to work, mm. not to do anything else. There's that boundary, you know. So it's tiny little things like that. Mm. And I make it really, really simple. And by the end of a workshop or by the end of the book, they're like, I can write a song, take away all that mystery. And I'll use examples of really simple songs that have like the simplest chorus. And they're like, oh, so I might start, you know, by actually saying the chorus of a really simple song without any melody. And they'll be like, that's a chorus. You know, it's really repetitive and there might just be a few words in it. So they then go, Oh, and I'm like, yeah, and that's that's been a number one. They're like, what, miss? Throughout the youth, the brain is is still developing, isn't it? I think is it into the twenties that we're still still developing in our brain. And so, Mental Health First Aid England describe how a lot of mental ill health in children and young people it is uncontrollable. So, how do your books assist? in helping the young singer to understand how they're feeling whilst they're also kind of fighting this internal battle of chemicals and, and physiology? Interesting question. I did my mental health first aid training in lockdown. That was incredible. Really, yeah, a couple of times had to come off screen during that because it was, it was really heavy. And actually some of the learning criteria in that now ties into what I'm going to say. So there will be some children or young adults that are not ready yet to actually say what they need to say. So I will get them to draw it. Mm. And so equally, I've had some children that aren't able to write very well. And I've been into some of the really difficult um, schools. I was hired um, last year to go into a school in inner city Birmingham that's got one of the worst Ofsted rated schools in the country. And some of the, the young adults, their writing age was a lot lower. And so they then suddenly felt really aware that they were having to song write. So they drew. And I'll never forget, there was this one girl and she started writing about this new girlfriend that she had. And the teacher said, you know, she hasn't come out yet. And he said, I'm amazed that you've made that happen. 
and it was okay. And she said, please don't read out my lyrics, but, you know, can you do it? I had um, another little boy um, in another school suddenly start writing about the death of his mum. And he'd been at this school for three years and had never opened up about how she died and how he felt. And the TA had to leave the room because she was crying. I instantly thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done wrong? And she said, no, no, we we just can't believe that he's talking about it. It's almost like, it's almost like you're giving permission because it's through a song and it makes it okay to say how you're really feeling deeply because that's what pop stars do. Mm. There's something about that. It makes it different. Mm. It's okay to get a bit angry in your lyrics and express it that way than getting angry in the playground. And of course, you know, then we're getting into emotions and I talk a lot in the book about expressing emotions and we're often told, you know, at school being angry is a bad thing, but if we, we have to let out or we, do get angry and being angry is just another emotion. Not all emotions, emotions are emotions. Okay. We see some as positive and some as negative, but they have to be expressed. Mm -hmm. And I think there's almost this lid that we've put on that children are not allowed to be emotional, which is a dangerous thing because you've then got a Coke bottle that's just. Mm. So the book gives permission. Yeah. Oh, wow. This sounds so powerful. It is. It's this work that I love. I absolutely love it because you never know what's going to happen. Mm. You know, something different happens every time. It's brilliant. Mm. You spoke about your childhood early on and it's quite an age, isn't it? That kind of teenage, adolescent, you know, I wouldn't go back for love nor money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember reading in, in, in Ginevra Williams' book, uh, Teaching Singing to Children and Young Adults, how she talks about teenagers listening to music about two and a half hours a day and how we often reflect on the music that we liked in those years as adults as being our favourite sound. I mean, big up the Spice Girls and the S Club 7s. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it, it because we it's identity forming and... There's, there's been lots of research in that's also another reason why in dementia care units, you put a song in front of, and I do this frequently, it's like suddenly because our identity is formed in those years, in our teens and 20s. So that's all locked into our, our psyche because, of course, it's the time that we lose our virginity, we leave home, we get a job, we fall in love, all those things that, that really take us from being a child and a young adult. And I bet you would remember the lyrics to something now if, if you suddenly played it that you've not heard for, for years. And it was all, it would almost like be coming out of your mouth, like it's some sort of reel that you can't stop. Mm. And also the feeling attached to it. There's a particular album, funnily enough, by Maroon 5, that I know, I know what that feeling is, and it's kind of uncomfortable. Really? Even though I love the songs, it there's I know what I felt like, and I'm I'm no longer my now thirty three year old self. I'm I'm seventeen and eighteen, and it and it feels I know it's it's almost tangible, and it's it's extremely powerful. I, I can hear it the first chord, and I'm like, ooh, love yeah, this song because it's like it's a diary of your life, isn't it? There's yeah. the deeper stuff wrapped up in that. Mm. Incredibly powerful. Yeah. yeah. 
It really is. And I still love the music that I listen to. You know, I was a punk at the time. That's the only thing I would go back for, to have my big red Mohican and my grade one and all my piercings. I, I pierced, I did like seven piercings with an ice cube. Oh, my I yeah, I know. I'd go back for all that, for all my punk music, but that's it. Yeah. Would you do the ice cube again? Yes. <laughs> What's stopping you? <laughs> health and safety yeah yeah caveat not don't do that don't do that <laughs> don't do that um what's your mission from here sophie what do you want to take out into the world from this i want every school to be doing songwriting and we're in a really frightening time at the moment as i'm sure you know music is just being erased from so much of the curriculum and it's just seen as jazz hands it's not seen for the other things that it achieves and the fact that it can be used in English, it's maths. It, it has so many cross-curricular advantages. So for me, it would be to get my books into every school. It would be to get my teacher training that I've now done that goes alongside the workshops and the books into schools. So for any you know schools that don't have provisions or don't have a teacher that's really au fait with teaching music, it would be to train somebody to teach and and to get parents buying it and just get it, every child with the basic knowledge of how to write a song to express themselves in a in a different way to maybe how they think is acceptable. Mm, mm. That's my that's my aim. Amazing. Other than your books, what would be the resources you would encourage us to to check out? on this subject oh gosh um what my resources or yeah things that you've liked things that you find that might be helpful to take into the teaching room or to for us to research from one thing that any teacher can do right now and this is a great way of settling the energy um after lunch when they might be a bit excitable or after first break um, a music teacher could do this as well. So this is something that I've done. It works a tree. I've told other teachers to do this and they've said, why didn't I think of that? And that is to make a playlist of every a song from every child. So they tell you what they love. You put that all into a Spotify playlist or whatever. And then every day, which is obviously going to buy you a month, you, after break or after lunch, you get everybody to just sit and close their eyes and just relax. And then you play that song and you all listen and then you have a little discussion afterwards. But of course, that child in the room whose song it is, is like, they're validated. Oh my gosh, it's about me. And so it's about everyone across a whole month. And then you start again. Or you take a bit of really relaxing meditation music get them breathing and then give them one word, give them one word. It could be anything. It could be family. It could be rain. And you get them just thinking about rain. And then after that, you get them to talk about whatever they saw and then create a song from that. Really, really simple. And you've got them calm. You've got them settled. They breathe. Their blood pressure's lowered because they've got oxygen going to the brain. It means they're also going to be alert because they're getting more oxygen to the brain. So you've done a number of things all in one go, and they're quiet. Mm. <laughs> Main point, they're blooming quiet. <laughs> love it. Really love that. Sophie, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Where can people find out about you and get their hands on your books? 
Thank you. They can go to my website, sophiegarner.com. I've also got one specifically for me as an author, which is the songwritingjournal.com. It's either .co.uk or .com. I can't remember because I've got so many websites, but they're all linked. So if they just go to sophiegarner.com, they can get it for me. And I put little goodies in as well, little badges and postcards when I send the book off. Nice. Love it. I'll be getting myself one of those for sure. Thank you so much. Oh, Alexa, thank you. Thank you for your really interesting questions. Very thought-provoking. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.